Hello and welcome back to our third class in our series on Russia and the Battle of Gog Magog, found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. I'll be your teacher for this class that will see how Israel is prepared to meet her God. Now in our first class, we saw that war is nothing new to the nation of Israel, for God has told the people that a great war was still to come in the future during the seven-year tribulation period. We learned why God chose Ezekiel to bring this prophecy of encouragement to the Hebrew exiles in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. We then saw the placement of chapters 38 and 39 that they indicated the events of those chapters would occur as part of the restoration of Israel that's described by chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel. And that following the battle of Gog Magog and the tribulation, the messianic or millennial age would begin as described then in chapters 40 to 43. That beginning will see the Lord return to Israel, enter the restored temple to rule and to reign over the earth for a thousand years. Now, after we did a very brief overview of chapters 38 and 39, we focused upon verses 1 and 2, where we saw that God's message was given to Israel concerning their enemy Gog of the land of Magog. We next saw how Ezekiel used three names of God to distinguish when God was speaking to his beloved Jewish people using the personal covenantal name Lord and when, with a different tone and purpose, he spoke as Master God to the heathen nations of the world. Now, in our last class, we first sought to identify Gog. To do this, we considered the three possibilities as to Gog's identity. The first possibility we considered was that Gog could be the personal proper name of a specific individual in history. Secondly, we thought that Gog could be a symbolic or a placeholder name or title for a person whose real name would be revealed during the time of the battle. And then finally, the third possibility is that Gog may be the actual name of a demonic prince under Satan's leadership, a demon who in turn motivates and or indwells a human national leader to come against Israel. And therefore, that leader would be described in Scripture by the name of this demonic influence in his life. You'll recall that we believe that this third identity best fits the scriptural use of Gog. We then identified the land of Magog as those lands and peoples of the Scythian Empire that was located on the northern coast of the Black Sea. The Scythian Empire was based primarily in the present-day steppes of southeastern Ukraine, Crimea, and eastern Russia during Ezekiel's day. Our study then considered the Ukrainian protests, today's Ukrainian protests and Russia's reactions to them, revealing Russia's great interest in the Crimea and the seaports of the Black Sea in the land of Scythian. Finally, we considered if Russia could be setting the stage for the great battle of Gog Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. As we begin today's study, I want to reiterate that our goals in these lessons are to identify the participants in the battle, to understand God's plan in detail for the battle, 
to determine when the battle will occur with respect to the rapture, the tribulation, and the return to the earth of the Lord. To understand God's purpose and what he wants to achieve by this event. And to show how this prophecy glorifies God and fits in with his overall plan of history. As we do this, remember, we're going to follow a literal or normal interpretation of Ezekiel and reject the allegorical interpretations followed by many interpreters, particularly of the Reformed theological background. Above all, I will attempt to show how these events are feasible in our day and what that means to you and to me as we study God's Word. You'll recall that I'm not going to name any contemporary people as Gog specifically, but we'll use living people as examples of what Gog might be like and how he might act. Finally, we will relate the geographic lands of Ezekiel to those nations that today are in the Middle East. Now, having reviewed our previous classes, we're now ready to see how God is preparing Israel for the battle of Gog Magog. As we begin today's study, we are given insight into Gog's thinking as he turns his attention to Israel. Please turn, if you will, to your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38 and follow as I read Gog's plan beginning in verse 11. So Ezekiel 38, and we're going to begin our reading in verse 11. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle, goods, that dwell in the midst of the land. Again, Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 11 and 12. Just as in the days of Israel's Babylonian captivity, when Ezekiel wrote this prophecy, God's chosen nation needs assurance that God will protect her from her enemies even today. The prophet Daniel prophesied that four sequential world empires would dominate Israel. These empires were first of all Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and finally the Roman Empire. This ongoing line of Gentile control from Babylon up to modern era has been fulfilling God's judgment upon Israel that Christ prophesied back in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, when he said, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, while this judgment continues to this day, one day, with Christ's return, it will come to an end. Now, despite the fact that in 1948 Israel became a free nation, 
it's still under the influence and pressure and in many ways controls of Gentile nations, especially those that are Arab. Even today, world opinion and pressure limits Israel's sovereignty over its most sacred site in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. That's the only place where Israel can meet with her God and offer sacrifices to him. But today, it's under the control of a Muslim consul. Dome of the Rock sits also on that site. The time of the Gentiles is not going to end until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth. Now, recognizing the extent of this judgment, God did offer his people comfort and hope because they are his chosen people. Israel's exile, he told them, would not last forever. There was actually a light at the end of a long tunnel of time. If we go back in Ezekiel to chapter 36, and we'll be looking starting with verse 24. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, we read, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Notice that. He will gather them from all these lands. He will bring them back to their land. You see, God promises through Ezekiel, his promise was not only for the Jewish captives in Babylon, his message was far-reaching, for it was also intended for the nation of Israel in the distant future. He continues to write in verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God, thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded up. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. This land, uh, and this land that was desolate is become, notice, like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be restored to fabulous conditions. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Notice that the cities will be fenced. Now, I, I need to kind of update that word. That fence could also be interpreted as rebuilt. So the waste and desolate of Israel, while they were in exile throughout history, when they were brought back, these cities would be rebuilt and once again inhabited by the Jewish people. After 70 years in exile, God motivated King Cyrus of Persia to issue a decree allowing any Israelites who so desired to return to their homeland. Sadly, only a small portion, approximately 10% of the exiles, a tithe, if you will, of the total Jewish population, chose to leave Babylon and to return to Israel. You see, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were tumbled down. The temple was in ruin. The land was desolate. So the majority, they had become too comfortable in luxurious living of the beauty of Babylon. They would say, what could Israel offer that was better than what we have here in Babylon? 
For most Israelites, God's promise seemed nearly impossible. This restoring to Eden, impossible. Or difficult at least. Uncomfortable for certain and definitely inconvenient. So they chose to remain as captives in a land that was not their own, in the land of Babylon. Now, for those who would listen, God offered a further message of comfort and hope through Ezekiel. So now if you'll turn, turn to chapter 37, and we'll look at verse 25. Ezekiel chapter 37, and we're going to begin with verse 25. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. David, my servant, that's a reference to the Messiah. He shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, observe my statutes, and do them. And my servant, dropping down, David shall be their prince forever. A clear reference to the Messiah, the son of David who would come and be the prince forever. Notice, God promised to send David's son, the Messiah, who would turn Israel back to God and end the Gentile domination, and then he would rule forever, and they'd remain in the land. Now, this wasn't new revelation to Israel. God, in his omniscience, his all-knowing, always knew how Israel would behave in the future. In fact, he had given Moses a stern message that is recorded in Luke in Leviticus 26, where we actually read of God's plan for Israel in the future. God's plan for Israel is actually given as an overview in Leviticus 26. You see, God gives this overview of his plan for his beloved Israel. Now, if you will, please turn to Leviticus chapter 26. In this chapter, God in his graciousness allowed Israel freedom to choose to faithfully serve him or if they wish, to choose to walk their own path. Recognizing that Israel would eventually choose to turn away from following God one day, God wrote them a warning in verse 27. So Leviticus 26, verse 27. If ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then will I walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You see, because of this, Moses presented God's three-step plan for dealing with Israel's sin. God anticipated, knew ahead they would do it. Moses then lays a plan how to restore themselves to fellowship with God. And that's all contained in this chapter. Step one, when Israel sins as a nation, God warned that he would drive her from the land, and notice carefully, would cause the land to become desolate. Uh, look in verse 33. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, 
and your land shall be desolate, and notice, your cities waste. God used the Babylonians as his instrument of chastisement to lay Israel waste, to drive the Jewish people from their land and then into captivity in the nation of Babylon. Now, it's important to note, the desolation of the land was God's way of showing Israel that it was he who put them in exile. It wasn't mere chance or, you know, global warming. No, it wasn't mere chance. It was God's intention, purpose, and will that they would be driven from the land, and God demonstrated that by miraculously causing Israel's soil to then lose its fertility for ages. Now, step two after exile. God promised to protect Israel as a nation, notice, even when exiled in the land of their enemies. Now look at verse 44. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. He would protect the nation when they're in the land of their enemies. They couldn't be destroyed utterly. Now, it doesn't say individuals, uh, numbers could be killed, but he says as a nation, they cannot be destroyed utterly. Now, step three, God promises to remember Israel by restoring the Jewish people to their nation along with their blessings he promised them and the land's fruitfulness. Look in verse 41. And that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts, that means their lack of spiritual turning to him, be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, notice now, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and notice I will remember the land. Do you see this? God uses the land as an indicator, if you will, of his blessing of Israel. Now, back in Ezekiel 36, in verses 17, let's go back to Ezekiel here, in chapter 36. <laughs> in Ezekiel 36, verse 17, God is warning Israel. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way, by their doings. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols, wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen. They were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their duty, doings. I judged them. God's prophet warned Israel's people that soon, this was written just before the exile, this part of Ezekiel, they would experience God's chastening, that first step of exile in Babylon. Again, the book is filled with comfort, though. 
as comfort, he reiterates God uh, Moses' statement that God promised to restore Israel completely in one day. Ezekiel 36, verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquity, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land was desolate, is become again like the Garden of Eden. Do you catch that? That's what God promises to do. You see, God graphically demonstrates this to Ezekiel and the nation of Israel by giving Ezekiel a vision. This is a famous vision. It's called the vision of the dry bones. It's recorded in Ezekiel 37 and begins really with verse 1. So in Ezekiel 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of dry bones. Full of dry bones. Now, there have been many jokes about this, but this is really serious. These bones represent Israel. And we learn in verse 2 that they were very dry. Now, the valley that they're in pictures the Gentile domination that began with Babylon and will continue until God gives the bones life. Now, the bones' dryness portrays two key elements. The first is Gentile domination of Israel. And the second is Israel's lack of a spiritual life that was pictured in Leviticus by their uncircumcised heart. You see, true spiritual life for Israel can only be realized when the people are in the land and they, as a nation now, recognize their Messiah. Until then, they are spiritually dead Dry bones, very dry bones. In Ezekiel's day and in our day, many have wondered if God will ever restore Israel and establish the messianic earthly kingdom. Thus, God poses a question to Ezekiel in verse 3. He says unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, Thou knowest. In other words, only you, God, know the answer. Can these bones live? God answered his own question again, and I keep stressing this, with a comforting response in verse 5. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. You see that? God's answering the question. Can they live? Yes. He will breathe to them. God then gives a biblical metaphor to graphically portray four steps in God's plan to resurrect and restore Israel as a nation. Step one, God's miraculously will regather Israel's scattered bones. He says this in verse four, and he said unto me, prophesy unto these bones, say unto them, O ye dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Notice the power that's going to work on these dry bones. The word of the Lord. Hear it. 
in the New Testament we read in Romans, it tells us faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by what? Or through what? The Word of God. The key is the power of the Word of God, always. Step two, God will then place sinews upon the bone, joining them together. Verse six begins, I will lay sinews upon you. Step two. Step three, God's going to then add flesh to the bones, forming a body. The rest of verse six. And will bring you up flesh upon you and cover you with skin. So now we have the dry bones, sinews holding them together, flesh covering them. We're ready for step four. God will breathe the breath of life into this body and it will regain life. Verse six and put breath in you, and ye shall live. Why? Ye shall know that I am the Lord. He will do this just as he did when he breathed life into Adam way, way back in the garden in Genesis 2, verse 7. You see, he created Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then God breathed the breath of life. In this metaphor... God identifies the bones for us just in case we don't quite catch it in verse 11. He then says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we are cut off from our parts. You see, Israel is spread out all over the world, but they'll be pulled together, the whole house. Notice that the people of Ezekiel's day recognized their desperate state and they had lost all hope when they were in Babylon. Thus, at this point, God offers them ongoing comfort and encouragement in the word. The comfort was intended for the whole house of Israel, not just for the exiles that would be in Babylon. Remember, the 10 tribes had already been scattered by Assyria. So Jewish people were already scattered beyond just Babylon. The regathering of the bones, though, began when Cyrus permitted a tiny remnant of exiles to return to their land in 538 B.C. Today, almost half of the world's Jewish population is back in Israel. In is individuals have returned from every tribe. Just as Ezekiel prophesied, God is in the process of regathering the bones. Regrettably, Israel today is a largely secular, unbelieving nation with only a small religious remnant that is looking for the Messiah and the fulfillment of God's promise. Truly, they are still very dry bones. But Israel will become a living body only when God breathes the breath of life into his people and they respond and recognize the Messiah as a nation as a whole recognizes him. God's breath of life is the key that is still missing and awaits fulfillment for only it can bring spiritual life to Israel. Now in that blessed day, he will cleanse the nation for his service and they will defy themselves no more. Look at verse 23. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. 
but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people and I will be their God. He will cleanse them. Now, in the Old Testament, that's the same word that we refer to now as atonement. So they will be atoned as a nation. They will be cleansed. And in our upcoming series on the Feast of Israel, we're going to describe the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Day of Atonement, as we explain how Israel as a nation also must be atoned. Now here in Ezekiel 37, and the promises back in Leviticus 26, we see that God is preparing Israel for his restoration of them to him. Having reviewed God's plan for restoring Israel and his process of restoration, we now are to consider the events to come. It, it, it's very difficult to deny that the bones haven't begun to appear. Jewish people of all nations have returned to Israel, although admittedly less than 50% of the total Jewish world population. But the nation has been reestablished, and the land certainly is blossoming. We could also add that Israel has considerable military strength or might enabled to protect itself. When all of Israel has been regathered, it will then only remain for God to breathe into his nation the breath of life. According to the Bible, when might this significant event occur? Well, I believe the context of Ezekiel guides us. Chapter 36 describes the restoration of Israel, the coming restoration. Chapter 37 illustrates that process, that ongoing steps of restoration. Now, Ezekiel 38 and 39 informs us when these events will take place, or it will at least give us a significant indication as to when. And Ezekiel 40, 42 describes the millennial temple that will follow the restoration, follow the battle of Gog Magog. Ezekiel 43 then describes the glorious return of the Lord as he enters into the temple in Jerusalem. Now, as previously considered, this will take place during the period of time that is described biblically as Israel's latter days. This is the time when God will turn his focus on Israel with the intent of bringing the nation one sole purpose, to repentance and restoration. Now, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, oh, I know, we sang this many times in the 70s, <laughs> trying to apply it to the United States. But this is a promise given to Israel, a promise that speaks that God will respond to their repentant cry when, according to 2 Chronicles 7.14, the conditions are met. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and again, there's that phrase, heal their land. Following this united cry to him for deliverance, God the Father will send, according to Acts 3.20, the Messiah to the earth to establish the millennial kingdom, 
that Ezekiel describes then in chapters 40 and 43. Imagine for a moment their astonishment when they realize that their Messiah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom they rejected, pierced, and crucified so long ago. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, he describes their future reaction. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Now this mourning for the only son is an obvious reference to how one would feel when they lost their firstborn son. Based upon the context surrounding the text of the Battle of Gog Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39, we can conclude that the battle must occur sometime between the regathering of the dry bones to Israel and the return of the Messiah to set up the Millennial Kingdom. Now, according to Ezekiel 38 in verses 1 through 6, God himself will swiftly destroy Gog's army and its coalition of nations. We're told in Ezekiel 39.9 that it will take seven years to burn the enemy's weapons that remain. Look at that in 9. And they shall dwell in the cities of Israel, shall go forth, and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields, the bucklers, the bows, the arrows, the handstaves, the spears. They shall burn them with fire, what? Seven years. Based upon the context of Ezekiel here, beginning in 36, 37, 38, 39, 40 through 43, we can determine that, if you will, the bookends are based on this context that bracket the events of Israel's latter days. Now, they don't give all the details. No, there's the book of Revelation. There's the many prophets' writings that help fill in in between. But it's, again, kind of an overview outline of the latter days. As we look at the context and as we focus in on this battle of 38 and 39, it will lead us to a question that would be very natural as we're studying. When will the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 occur in history? We're now going to look into this question of when will this battle take place? Now, because some Bible scholars are speculating that the events currently taking place in the Ukraine might lead to this prophesied confrontation, it's very important that we understand when the alliance of Magog might occur with respect to the latter-day events. As we study the scriptures, there are four possibilities regarding when it will take place. Now, scholars have agreed on many points and disagreed on some in terms of this timing, and there have basically fallen out four different timings for this. Uh, one is, says that the battle will take place before the rapture of the church. Another says it will occur after the rapture, but before the start of the tribulation. A third is that it will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation. And finally, the fourth view is that it will occur at the end of the millennium. While I personally believe that only one opinion satisfies the context of Ezekiel, we're going to consider all four briefly. 
The first possibility is that the attack will take place before the rapture of the church. Now, this view, however, violates a key principle of the imminency of the rapture, a doctrine that's been taught from the early days of the church. Remember, only God the Father knows when these things will take place. Based upon the teaching of biblical imminency, the next event on God's prophetic calendar for the church is the rapture. It can occur at any moment. Nothing must precede it. No signs uh, or no events, specific events. There can be stage setting, but no events prophesied in Scripture will occur until the rapture. That's the doctrine of imminency. This imminency has been the comfort and blessed hope of the church throughout the entire church age. Furthermore, since the church and national Israel are two separate entities in God's plan for history, and God will turn his attention to the nation of Israel after the rapture of the church. The battle of Gog Magog involving only Israel and not the church must take place after the church has been removed. Additionally now, the context of Ezekiel 38 and 39 places these events solely with those events that are designed to bring Israel to repentance and restoration. Thus, to place the Gog-Magog event during the church age and before the rapture isn't consistent with Scripture, for it serves no purpose for the church. The second possibility occurring at the end of the millennium is based on Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, when the thousand years, that's the millennium, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Here we go, Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog. To gather them together to battle the number of whom is as a sand of the sea. You see, Gog and Magog are now mentioned again in Revelation 20. And in this context, Satan is going out from, he's been released from the bottomless pit to organize a worldwide rebellion against God. Now, if this battle in Revelation is the same one as described by Ezekiel, we would expect at least some hint, some reference to the other nations listed in Ezekiel 38, that they'd be included in Revelation. But none are named at all. Furthermore, we, there would have to be a gap then of seven years between the end of the millennium and the start of the new heaven and earth. For the sequence of the scripture is that after the millennium, the new heavens and new earth will begin. Well, that means there has to be seven years also to burn the weapons. Uh, if the new heavens, new earth is going to destroy the old, then those weapons would have been destroyed then. So there wouldn't be enough time to burn the weapons as prophesied by Ezekiel 39.9. We've got to be consistent scripture to scripture. As I've said, the Bible never indicates there's such a gap at the end of millennium. 
at the end of the millennium, remember now, the entire earth is burned up and the new earth created. Thus, there'd be no reason to burn the weapons for seven years. They would have been consumed with the old earth. Most likely, there will be two battles in scripture labeled Gog Magog. And the reason is, it's the same demonic prince named Gog who instigates both battles, but years and years apart, a millennium apart. The Bible clearly indicates that there is an ongoing spiritual battle being waged all around us that involves fallen angels and demons, as we talked about in our second class. These are sometimes referred in Scripture as principalities and powers. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we read, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. These rulers of darkness are fallen demonic angels who roam the earth, influencing and even inhabiting unsaved, unsaved individuals, even leaders and rulers of some nations. Recall now that we saw this in that last class where we looked at the book of Daniel. It seems that particular demons have been assigned to influence or rule over individual nations. With this concept, it would explain why certain nations seem to follow characteristics, patterns of behavior, regardless of changing generations of human leadership and hundreds of years. This is why it's so important to pray that we have God-fearing and regenerate leaders for our nation. Now, the third possibility places the battle at the midpoint of the tribulation. Many highly respected Bible teachers choose the midpoint of the tribulation for the timing of the battle of Gog Magog. They base this upon Daniel's prophecy linking the events with the king of north's assault upon the Antichrist that's recorded in Daniel 11. Their arguments, I frankly, are good, but they don't account for the armies of the south that are named in Gog Magog's of Ezekiel. They also do not account for God's teaching on the feasts of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 23. Again, a series that we're going to be bringing you in the months ahead, and we'll show you the teaching, and you'll see how the feasts force a different interpretation for the timing of Gog Magog. Now, we're going to cover that, not quite the depth that we will in those classes, a little bit later here as we consider the fourth possibility. An additional and significant objection to the midpoint timing of this battle is the length of time needed to burn the weapons seven years. The fact that both the length of the tribulation and the time needed to burn the weapons are the same, both seven years. That, to me, suggests that the weapons will be burned throughout the seven-year tribulation, perhaps as a reminder. I don't believe it's coincidental that the time periods are the seven. It seems reasonable to suppose that they should be disposed of, the weapons, before the millennium begins. However, the possibility that the passages of Isaiah and Micah 
used to support this midpoint tribulation view, telling of men beating their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, could refer to the disposal of the weapons along with the weapons of Armageddon on into the millennium. So, having eliminated the first three possibilities, I'd now like to offer what I believe is the most likely timing of the Battle of Gog Magog. I believe that the attack upon Israel by Gog Magog most likely will take place during the period of time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. You say, well, why? Because it offers solutions to two significant considerations. The first relates to the influence and power of Islam, and the second to the influence and power of the reformed Roman Empire and its Antichrist. This leads to the fourth possibility, placing this battle between the rapture and again, the start of the tribulation. Most respected commentators on prophetic events teach that the Antichrist will arise from a 10 region reformed Roman Empire that is centered in Western Europe. Now, if we are living in the latter, latter days of the church, just prior to these events, we must account for the growing power of Islam in the world and in Europe in particular. We, we just can't ignore it if we're that close to the rapture. As we'll see in a later session, the nations forming the Gog Magog Alliance of Ezekiel 38, they're not European. They are primarily Islamic from what we consider the Middle East. Unless stopped or restrained in the near future, Islam is going to dominate Europe. If the start of the tribulation is near today, I stress that, if it's near today, Islam would be the dominant power of the final world empire of the Antichrist described by Daniel right after the rapture. Now, since Islam is aggressively involved with nations around the world, but particularly those nations surrounding Israel. Because of this reality, I believe that God will utterly destroy the power, the, the sword, if you will, of Islam before the start of the tribulation. And I believe that for the following reason. Number one, there's no indications in the Bible of the Antichrist empire being Islamic. Ancient Rome was pagan at the beginning, but it eventually became superficially Christian. Its eastern remaining remnant, the Byzantine Empire, ultimately was conquered and ended by Islam in the 15th century. Again, consensus leans toward Western Europe becoming the primary center of the Antichrist's empire and not that of the, today's Islamic world. Second reason, as Isaiah 14 relates to Satan's goal, it specifies that he wishes to be like the Most High, to duplicate the Most High God. To achieve this, Satan will strive to establish a worldwide kingdom and a worldwide religion that is a counterfeit form of Christ's kingdom and Christianity during the tribulation. Since Islam bears little similarity to Christianity, in fact none, 
it would not enable Satan to use it as his imitation or replacement Christianity. Now, I explain Satan's goals and his imitation Christianity in great detail in my book, The European Union and the Super-Religion, Setting the Stage for the Final Act, which is, of course, available through our website. Our third reason, the concept of a counterfeit, all-encompassing world religion or a super-religion does allow for the incorporation of Islam as part of the world religion, but not as the world-dominating political power or religion. Fourth, if the Antichrist empire were Islamic, he would logically be a Muslim. Nowhere does the Bible support this characteristic for the Antichrist. And significantly, the definition of anti in John's concept and teaching on the Antichrist is best translated instead of, instead of Christ, suggesting a substitute for Christ, not against Christ. Again, indicating a counterfeit form of Christianity instead of Christ. Fifth, the battle, if the battle were to occur at the midpoint of the tribulation, Islam would be the major power and influence in world affairs during those first three and a half years of the tribulation. But, but there's no hint of this in the Bible. Therefore, either Islam loses influence before the start of the tribulation, or if it retains power, it must permit a false Christianity, an imitation Christianity to arise, which I believe is a very highly unlikely scenario. By placing the attack by Gog before the start of the tribulation, we can remove Islam as a military power while allowing it to continue as one of the world's religions that will be incorporated into the worldwide religion of the Antichrist. It would allow the European Antichrist to rise to power at the beginning of the tribulation, establish a covenant in the Middle East, and eventually present himself as the instead of Christ, the Christ at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now I base this on Daniel 9, 27, Mark 13, verse 14, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. This view also allows seven years to burn the weapons and cleanse the land prior to the beginning of the millennium. Now according to Ezekiel 38, Verse 11, Israel will be at rest, dwelling safely just prior to the coming of Gog, Magog. So if you'll look now at this verse. Oops, I got to get back to Ezekiel. Bear with me here. <laughs> verse 11, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Again, that was Ezekiel 38, verse 11. In this verse, the word safely may also be translated equally as well as confidently. Thus, Israel would be confident with respect to her security. Significantly, out of 160 military forces in the world today, do you know where Israel ranks? It's 11th in global firepower.
of those top 10 forces uh, that are greater than Israel, not one has ever been a significant threat or opponent to Israel. 43% of Israel's population has been designated as, quote, fit for service in the military right now. For those living in Israel, the confidence level in its Israeli defense force is great. Additionally, today's world of missiles negates any need or purpose of walled villages, so naturally there would be no walls or gates. You see, the emphasis of this verse is upon rest and safety, or let's say the word confidence. By the way, with respect to the missile danger, Israel has its Iron Dome missile defense system in place that deflects and destroys most incoming missiles. Again, good reason for confidence. We must also consider, though, the fact that God's purpose of the battle is to demonstrate to Israel that their defenses could not protect them, that their confidence in their defenses is insufficient to protect them from Gog, but only their God could protect them. In order to create that contrast for God to demonstrate, Israel has to feel very confident, has to see Gog, Magog approaching, and Israel then at that point could lose their confidence. Seeing the destruction of Gog and his allies, Israel says, we couldn't do it, only God. Therefore, I believe at this time, God wants Israel to rest her confidence prior to Gog Magog in their own defenses. And then when faced by Gog and his allies, their confidence in themselves will crumble and they'll realize their need, their need of their God. Look at Ezekiel 39 and verse 22. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God. Notice, from that day and forward. For God's miraculous intervention and deliverance of Israel from the attack of Gog Magog will cause Israel to recognize and acknowledge their God. In recognition of this and in gratitude, Israel would desire to resume covenant worship and sacrifice at the temple site. Now, since this site is controlled by Islamic Gentile religious powers, Israel will look to the Antichrist and his government to issue an agreement allowing her to do so. So we see back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant or the treaty with many for one week. And in the book of Daniel, one week is seven years. And in the midst of the week, three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offerings to cease. You see, with the destruction of the world's major Islamic military power, the remaining Islamic world will not be in a position to prevent this treaty or covenant. As we'll see later, the accompanying earthquake of Ezekiel 38 verse 19 could be used to destroy the Islamic mosque on the temple site, just as God did with Dagon way back in 1 Samuel 5 verse 3. This destruction of the mosque would be a significant blow to Islam 
and their belief in the superiority of Allah. Despite the Antichrist's help with the treaty, Israel will still be in a state of spiritual blindness at this point, though. They're not going to recognize the Antichrist for who he is. He may, in fact, rise to prominence from a seemingly obscure bureaucratic position within the government because he devised the cleverly worded agreement that enables Israel to worship peacefully on the Temple Mount. I believe the signing of this agreement will start the tribulation clock ticking. While Israel has faced many attacks in the past, the time of the battle of Gog Magog will be totally different from those. For Christians will not be here to influence other governments to offer aid, or most importantly, to intercede and pray for Israel. With the church raptured and removed, Israel stands alone when Gog and his allies surround her. I believe the state of the world following the rapture will embolden Gog to form the alliance and believe the time is now right to come against Israel. God will also use Israel's economic prosperity and resources to entice Gog to attack Israel. Notice verse, Ezekiel 38 verse 4. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws. That's Gog's jaws. And I will bring thee forth all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers, shields, all of them handling swords. Now move down to verse 12. Coming to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Notice then, verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? It is clear that Gog's motivation is twofold. Spoil is the economic gains for the victor. Prey indicates the desire to kill or to destroy. That word suggests the ideological, in this case, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel motives of these people. Thus, some of the participants are involved purely for financial gain but others are there purely for their ideological agenda to exterminate the Jewish people. Now, as we consider these passages, we recognize that Israel's attack by Gog, it may not happen for many, many, many years from now, but the feasibility of it taking place sometime in the near future, I think becomes more apparent when we study Gog's characteristics and identify specifically his allies in our succeeding classes. Thank you for joining me in this class. Please join me again for our next class on Russia and the Battle of Gog Magog. 
That class will be webcast on October 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and available 24-7 on demand beginning on October 26th. As all of our classes are available 24-7 on our website. We're very excited to see so many viewing our webcasts around the world. At last check, we had over viewers in over 14 countries of the world. We have appreciated the many emails and the questions that have been sent to us. If you have questions, please do not hesitate to contact us and we'll be sure to get our answers back to you in a timely manner. Now please pray for us as we continue to produce several classes. These will be announced via our website and our Cogna News Bible Commentary CNBC newsletter available free by email through our website. In the very near future, we'll be presenting a series of webcasts on the Feast of the Lord from Leviticus 23. You've heard me refer to it in this class. And we'll also be doing a new series entitled, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. This will be a comparison of New Calvinist teaching with the Bible. So be sure to go to our website, congdenministries.org. That's congdenministries.org for more information and for updates as to availability of these classes. Now, may the Lord bless you mightily. We will see you either here again or in the air. Thank you.